0: This is the word of the Lord. On the third day Esther put her royal robes, put on her royal robes, and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you, even up to half my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your request? Even to half my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I prepared for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. And Haman went out that day, joyful and glad of heart, But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife, Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions which the king had honored him, and how he advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king." Then Haman said, even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, let a gallows 50 cubits high be made. And in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had had the gallows made. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. It is nice if you have the ear of someone important. This is true no matter what realm of life we find ourselves in, at work, with family, at the church. If we have the ear of someone important, or at least someone we feel is important, we have some place we feel like we can go. If uh, we want to get something done, if we're unsure of what's going on, or whatever it may be, if we're unhappy about something. (laughs) We feel like it brings with it uh, a sense of security. We don't feel isolated. We don't feel alone. We can even feel as if it elevates our own importance. Esther last uh, week ended with kind of a cliffhanger. Esther was fasting for three days, for three nights, waiting to go into the, the king, and her life is in the balance. She was playing somewhat a game of chance with her life. Would she go before the king and live, or would she go before the king and die? The people were fasting, they were holding their breath. How would the drama unfold? What was going to happen to Esther, to Mordecai, to the people? What will happen? Who will hear the people's plea? Esther needed someone she could go to that had influence. And that person was the king, but she didn't know how it was going to end up. And so we see this unfolding today. The three points we'll look at is Esther's plot. Second is Haman's anger. And third is God's sovereignty. Esther's plot, Haman's anger and God's sovereignty. We now see the story moving forward. Three days have passed. She dressed herself in her royal best, and she goes and she presents herself before the king. And we hold our breath. What will happen? And the king takes his scepter, he extends it towards her, and we all go, okay, she's not dead yet. There's a sigh of relief. The threat of death is removed. Esther will not die. Yet she's not out of danger. There's still several obstacles for her to get over. We have this decree of Haman. How will she deal with that? It was the law of the Medes and Persians. It could not be changed. And so Esther begins to play a game with the king. She's slowly going to draw him in. He says, hey, what's going on with you, Esther? If you need something, I'll, anything, anything, just tell me, and I'll give you up to half of my kingdom. And that's a pretty generous thing right there, right? Think of some great king, maybe the king of England when he still was the actual the king sovereign of England, and he said, "I'll give you up to half of my kingdom. Half of it will be yours. Could you imagine if someone just came' I don't know, Bill Gates, he's really wealthy, right? Hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars. If he, you go to Bill Gates and he said, "I'll give you up to half my money." Yeah, that's a good deal, right? I'd like like to have that. Who wouldn't? But she doesn't ask for it right away. See, the king, even this king, this foolish king, he's not so dense to know that Esther doesn't want something. He knows that she took a risk by coming to see him. Why endanger your life? But Esther still had more obstacles to overcome. Uh, the first we already mentioned, this was an irreversible law. This was tradition when a law was in place. It was the same problem that Daniel had, right, with the or bowing to the idol. Or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I guess it was. It was law, and even though the king didn't want to throw him into the fiery furnace back then, he had to because it was law. And the law was in place. How could he reverse this law without losing face? And we know this is a king who doesn't like losing face, right? That that silly wife of mine won't come. Y'all show her. She would also, though, have to reveal herself to be a Jew. She's been lying to him all this time. Why didn't you tell me who you actually were? Why didn't this come up? What is the backlash? that might come from this and we have to understand that Esther it seems, at least probably to her that she's operating in a bubble it's not like Moses coming to God in a burning bush saying I want you to go to the king of Pharaoh and this is what I want you to say it's not like that she's making these steps going forward not knowing the outcome she had to work with what she had so she invites the king to a feast and she says hey why don't you bring Haman with you and I want you to come to a feast and they go and they eat and they drink and they're married but even at the end of all this Haman still, or excuse me the king's still not dumb you did not risk your life for a date which is in essence at this point all she's asked for hey come have dinner with me Bring your friend if it feels good to you. See, she didn't risk her life for that. So she says, "Tell me, tell me what you want." And again, he says, "The second time, tell me what you want. I'll give you up to half of everything I have." And it seems like she's going to ask, right? She starts to well, this all this language of like, "Let me tell you what I want if it pleases the king." But she doesn't actually ask. She asks for them to come back the next day. Would you come back one more time? Would you come have dinner with me again and, and bring him on one more time? She's playing. This is something that doesn't happen in a bubble. It's not like me and Luann went out to dinner and asked one other person. No, this is seen by everyone. They're watching what's going on. She's putting him into a position where he would be virtually obligated to do what she asked. I've often heard this said, and women, you can agree or disagree, uh, but I've often heard it said that what women like to do is make men think it's their idea to do something. That's how you get things done, right? We'll just make them think it's his idea. When all along it's not really his idea, it's our idea. And am, am I letting out a secret? Wait. <laughs> that's what you have to do that's what she's doing she's maneuvering him she made him feel as if she was in, he was in control but you have to think curiosity alone is going to bring him back what does she want what is, what's going on here if he comes again he's, he's almost agreeing to give her what he wants before he knows if he, if he goes back on this promise he'll lose face It still may seem like a long shot, but it's a good shot. Now, we've said a lot about Esther over the last, what, four weeks up to this point? And there's a lot of things you can say about Esther. Was Esther a model Christian, as it were, a model follower of God? No, we know she's not. She's not acted like she should. She has given in oftentimes to the will of the world. But she is also not not without faith. It may be hidden, but it's there. And we have to acknowledge this fact. She is taking a stand for God. She may not understand what it entails, but she is defending God's people. And and here's the reality. This is the the takeaway we get to take from Esther. We, too, must take a stand for God. And it may not always end the way we want it to end. And it may cost us something before it's all said and done. But we have to take a stand for God. Notice the stand that Esther takes. Because it's no small stand. I'm going to go before the king. And there are only two outcomes. He'll spare my life or he'll kill me. She goes in with that knowledge. These are my two outcomes. I may die here, but she takes a stand. On one hand, in this part of the story, we have Esther. On the other hand, we have Haman. Haman, who is kind of the tag along here, right? He's the third wheel, as it were, to the party. He's being drugged along, and he just is kind of smiling for the ride. Oh, I mean, with the king and the queen. I'm hot stuff, Right? Could you imagine being invited to go with the king and queen, sit down and eat with them? But here's here's the problem with Haman. He's both ignorant of what's going on, but he also has this problem. He wants to be significant, but he just doesn't want to be significant. He wants to be seen being significant. He wants everyone around him to notice how significant he actually is. And because of this, it doesn't take much to spoil his mood he's been having a great day he's been going about life oh I'm hanging out with the king we're having a good old time oh and then all of a sudden uh, oh, the queen comes and wants to go to a feast and I get to go to the feast with the king and queen and this is a good day and then as he's leaving he sees that pesky mordecai you ever have those people in your life where if you just see him you it all changes your countenance oh, that person There seems to be an an irrational hatred of Mordecai here. He comes into the king's gate. Mordecai's sitting there. He doesn't show him respect, and he doesn't fear him. You think at the very least for Haman, as he's coming out, Mordecai knows what he's done, and there might be fear, but Mordecai is indifferent to him. And this turns Haman's joy to wrath. His whole fragile ego cracks when it's being stoked he's feeling blessed but when it's ignored he feels angry nothing has actually changed about his life guess what he's still the guy who just had dinner with the king and queen he's still the second most powerful person in the country but everything fell apart for him at this point but he doesn't do anything he goes on about his business He goes out to do damage control. So what do you do when you're feeling down about yourself? It'd be if I came home from a real hard meeting at work or something, and I said, family, come in this room. Sit down. Let me tell you about me. I am a preacher among preachers. I go from the pulpit, and I preach fire and whatever. And they'll laugh at me like they're doing now. He goes to him. He says, hey, let me tell you about myself. I've been elevated in the kingdom above anyone else. Look at how many sons I have. Look how rich I am. He's boasting. I think he's trying to make himself feel, feel good about himself. He alone, he said, I alone have been summoned to the queen's banquet. But for all this, for all this, It's all worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. How fragile was his world? How fragile was his God? This idol he had placed in his heart to be the most significant person just shy of the king. That if one insignificant Jew, Mordecai, shuns him, then that ruins everything. point there's a sense in which we, we wish we could step into the story because uh, we, we have either been hung on or we've known someone probably both at some point what counsel do you give to that person who is irrationally angry for no good reason simply because they saw someone who puts them in a bad mood and you're like come on calm down it's okay life is going on take a breath And really, Haman for us becomes a study for us in what happens when our idols are challenged. Because this is how we respond when someone comes to us and says, You know, I think you're giving a little too much time to fill in the blank. I think you're allowing this thing to be more important in your life than anything else. And what is our typical response to that? Well, you don't know. You don't know what's going on. You don't know me. I'm just perfectly fine. And our bubble is shattered. Haman is a kind of a hard guy to have sympathy with, isn't he? You look at him and he's just not a likable character. He's kind of this guy, he's the villain, you know? You don't watch the movie Aladdin and find sympathy for Jafar. You just don't. He's the evil guy. He's the one who the story is all about, who's who's the the negative influence in the story. But he needs guidance. He needs someone to point him to truth. What could have maybe led his life in a positive direction? What could have been said to allow this rage to be an opportunity to change his heart, to uncover what was filling that God-shaped hole in his life? Maybe he could have seen his idols. Maybe he could have grown from it. But he did not seek sound advice. He went to his own yes-men. To those people he knew would answer him the way he would like to be answered. And bad counsel wins out. And basically his wife and his friends say, look, this is what you need to do. Build a massive gallows. Let's hang it. And let's do it in the biggest way possible. Which if you think about, is really dumb. Because who else knew about Mordecai? Even the king who Mordecai saved his life has already forgotten about Mordecai. Nobody knew who Mordecai was. So the, the surest way to make Mordecai a very known public display is to build the biggest gallows you possibly can build and stick him on it. And people are going to go, hey, what's this about? A much smarter thing would be like, hey, just have him drug off and take care of him. Nobody would have ever known he'd have been a blip in history and that would have been the end of it, right? No, but he doesn't do it that way. Because he, he's going to say, this is how important I am. When in fact he's reflecting how important Mordecai, uh, he's making Mordecai even more important than he is. He's missing the point. And this is what happens to us as well when we feed our idols. We actually end up emptier than ever. We become greater in bondage to them. This kind of counsel will ultimately lead to our own destruction. Haman, for whatever he is, he's beyond help. And our hearts are tempted to the same sort of anger. Our idols expose our strong are exposed when we exhibit our strongest emotions. So how do we respond when our idols are confronted? How do we respond when someone comes and says, Look, I need to tell you about this. I think I see this going on in your life, and I don't think it's good for you. And I think the reality is this happens to us on a daily basis from big things to small things. Because I can tell you right now, if if I was to say, Okay, Luann, come up here. I'm going to ask you a few questions. How do I respond when you challenge me on things? Uh, the answer is not good, usually. Now, hopefully, and most of the time, I usually try to calm down and come back. But when Luanne tells me, you shouldn't do that, I usually go, Well, what do you know? You don't know what's going on. Because she's challenging me in an area I know I'm doing wrong, and so I respond in anger to her. Is this, maybe this is just our marriage. You know that? Does it feel familiar anywhere else? <laughs> Probably does feel familiar in other places. We respond in anger because our idols are being challenged. We all do this from the oldest to the youngest of us. And we have to be on watch for our idols. What are the things we're placing primary importance of? What are the things we're putting above everything else, including God? What are the things we're pouring our time, our energy, and our care into? We cannot, like Haman, be so moved so easily by the whims and, and the, of our wants. And so we could stop there and we could say, well, that's the story, right? That's, so far to this point is the story. You have Esther, what she's doing. You have Haman, what she's doing. And we still don't know quite what's going to happen here. We know that Haman's going to try to hang Mordecai. But there's something very else important that we have to seen here. This is our third and final point, And that's God's sovereignty. Esther shows us that sometimes dealing with the empire, sometimes dealing with the world means being subtle. Sometimes a direct confrontation is not always the wisest course of action. Oftentimes, meekness is much more effective. Here's an example we see of this in the New Testament 1 Peter 3 1 and 2. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husband, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct. In essence, Peter there is saying, win your husbands, not through beating them down and saying, this is what you need to do, this is what you need to do, but win them for your own actions. And this is true of all of us. We understand that as we go through Esther, it's not Esther's work alone. God is always at work. He's using Esther. He's using Mordecai's stubbornness. He's using Haman's self-centeredness. He used the counsel of Haman's friends. All of these things are necessary for God's unfolding plan. Everything is happening that God, the way God designed it to happen to bring this conflict between Haman and Mordecai to a head, but also to resolve the problem of Israel's destruction. It was not done without per- pomps, it was not done with circumstance. There was no lion's den, there was no fiery furnace. But God's plan was moving forward all the time, and this is still true for us today. I love the the, the books, *The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe*, and I love this phrasing: "Aslan is on the move. He's moving. God is always on the move. He he's go he's going forward." And. It proceeds, it moves forward by us being who we are. Does this mean that we're merely puppets? We have to understand something. We know that God is in control over all things, that he's working all things out for his own glory and for our good. But that does not mean we're passive. That does not mean we're helpless. We do exactly according to our own desires and temperaments. Our freedom and responsibility to act is never compromised. But in the end, God's purposes will come about. Philippians 2. Therefore my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my pre- as in my presence but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is good, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We are working out our salvation, but God is also working it out within us. And I think we would be, it would be shameful at this point not to once again consider the two kingdoms, even as we have each and every week. We have to consider the kingdom of God in opposition to this empire, this kingdom of the world. Approaching God, the king, is not like approaching a Ahasuerus. You don't approach the throne of God wondering, is he going to smite me or not? That's not how it works. You approach the throne of God boldly, not on trembling knees, not with fear, wondering if you will survive, but God invites you to come. And he doesn't invite you to come sometimes, he invites you to come all the time, frequently making our petitions known. He is father to us. Even the scripture said if earthly fathers take care of their children, how much more will your heavenly Father take care of you? We see this throughout Scripture over and over again. Philippians 4, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything be by prayer and supplication, with Thanksgiving. let your request be made known to God. Hebrews 4:16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. We are called to frequently come into his presence. And for us, our entry fee is free. But know this, your entry fee is not cheaply bought. We freely come before him, but we have one who has paid for it with his own blood. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and now nothing can remove that from us We have an entry card signed in blood. And the question for us is this What have you done with it? What have you done with your entry fee before the kingdom, before the king of of the world? It is a never-ending pass. You get to come before him whenever you want. Are you doing it? Are you constantly on your knees rejoicing with overflowing hearts for this undeserved favor? There's this saying, there's no atheist in a foxhole. And what is that saying getting at? We come to God in our biggest time of need. In the foxhole, you're under fire. It's dangerous. You are concerned for your life. And during that time, uh, you begin to bargain with God. God, if you just get me through this. I remember after the Cubs won the World Series, I started seeing this picture on the thing. Hey, for all those who made your prayers to God, church starts at 1030 tomorrow. Uh, The joke being, you're praying for something to happen. And now that it's happened, what are you going to do? There's no atheist in a foxhole because in our hardest time of life we want to believe that there's something out there helping us. But the rest of the time, when things are going okay, how do we act? Far too often we can be like Fickle Haman. We can say, yes, I know I'm God's child, but I really, really need fill in the blank. What is the thing that you need? What we should be doing is daily coming on our knees before God, asking that he transform our hearts, knowing that he has given us the Holy Spirit that is lifting our hearts up to Christ, filling us with a desire and a worship to pray, to bring about our sanctification. So the first question is, what are we doing with the past that we've been given to come before God? And the second is this. If we have the king's favor... Why do we care so much about what's going on around us? Why do we care about so much about what the world thinks it can do to us? We have the promise of God himself. We have the promise that he will, with absolute least and certainty, answer our prayers when we ask. He will argue our case in heaven. Why are we so worried about the world, what Haman can do to us? We know we only have it in part now. He has promised his presence with us. He will not forsake us. Yet there is still a longing for what is to come. In God, in Christ, we have the richest treasure there is. It's the only hope we have. It's the only hope we can long for. But for the time being, we wait with anticipation, trusting in the Holy Spirit, wrestling with our own idolatry, seeking the one who will produce faith in our hearts. We have no fear in the king's coming because we are the king's servants. Christ himself will open the door to us. None can shut it in our face. There is no earthly power or principality that can do anything that will affect our standing before God. Esther is taking a stand for for God. She's putting her life on the line. She's maneuvering the king. We need to also likewise be like this, patiently and fervently bringing about truth. We need to do it in maybe a different way than Esther. We need to be actively seeking and calling upon God. But we cannot be like Haman, who is placing his trust and his hope in his own power and position on his own works of his hand, we are to come and understand that God is in control, that he is working all things out, and that we are to rest and trust in him, the king, who has paid the price so that we can come before him. In a moment, this is what we're going to see here, that the king paid the price so that we can come into his presence, his body broken his blood poured out he has come he has come for us so that we may have life whom do we fear and in whom do we hope i think that's the question that esther has left before us today do we have hope in god Do we fear him only rightly as the one who is creator of heaven and earth? Or do we fear this world and are we in love with all its trappings? Brothers and sisters in Christ, my hope and prayer is that we would learn to love this world less and to love our God more. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do believe that you are indeed sovereign. That you are working all things out for Your glory and for our good. Would that belief ring true in our hearts and come forth from us in the way we act and work and labor in your kingdom, we ask in Jesus' holy name. Amen.